uh, for our sermon this morning is Judges chapter 20. looked at quite a shocking chapter last week, Judges 19, and here, Judges 20, the response to all that transpired, and what we see break out is civil war, so that all the tribes of Israel, save for the tribe of Benjamin, come out wanting to address the problem in Judges 19. The tribe of Benjamin sides with their own people, the men of Gibeah, and so those are the two sides going into battle. Um, it's all Israelites, all the tribes other than Benjamin, and then the tribe of Benjamin fighting. So God's people are now turned inward for civil war. This is Judges 20, and it's God's holy word, inerrant and infallible, perfect to accomplish all of his purposes. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance, because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. All the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it as the lot directs. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred from a thousand, and a thousand from ten thousand, to get provisions for the army. Then, when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah, so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who shall go first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. 
The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites in the battlefield that day. But the men of Israel encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then the Israelites, all the people, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that, that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brother, or not? The Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush that had set, they had set near Gibeah. The men who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and then the men of Israel would turn in the battle. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and they said, we are defeating them as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the smoke of the whole city going up into the sky. Then the men of Israel turned on them, and the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the desert, but they could not escape the battle. The men of Israel who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant fighters. As they turned and fled toward the desert to the rock of Rimon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Gidom and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. 
all the towns they came across, they set on fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the more interesting correspondences in American history is the late-in-life letter exchange between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. It shows these two men in a much more reflective posture after the remarkable lives that they led. Uh, Lives of different personalities, lives of great victories and failures, lives of, of wonderful virtue and also great mistakes. Great men, flawed men, But remarkable lives no one can deny. It's also a conversation that although they are much older, it shows them true to themselves. John Adams is, he writes about, I think about 10 letters for every one that Jefferson writes. He's always trying to coax more out of him. His language is always colorful. Sometimes he flies off into wild conjecture. And he keeps pressing Jefferson to answers to particular questions. They both seemed to understand that these letters would be read by posterity and perhaps generations of Americans to follow them. It's for that exact reason that Adams wants all of the letters filled with juicy content and Jefferson basically wants none. That gives you a bit of an insight into their differences in personality. One subject that Adams will not drop is slavery. He's a northerner. He's opposed to it. And he keeps pressing Jefferson, who is the author of the Declaration of Independence, which became really the the, the foundational document for men like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass later on to show the absurdity of slavery in, in the United States of America. He keeps pressing Jefferson as the author of that great document, to give an explicit answer for where he stands on that issue of slavery. Jefferson says he has come to this decision. He finally addresses it in a couple smaller places. He says he's come to the decision that he's just not going to deal with it. He's left that issue, he says, to future generations. Doesn't want to to deal with it in his lifetime. To Adams, this is a profound disappointment, for he was the one who prophetically said, unless we solve this issue here and now at the founding of the country, in a century or less, it will be an issue that's only solved in blood. And just under 100 years later, of course, America goes to civil war, 600,000 able-bodied men give their lives, most of them fighting on the side to abolish slavery. What makes civil war so painful and what makes it such a tragedy is that there's no balance of our death versus their deaths, our victories versus our losses. Every death was an American death and every death meant pain shot through the heart of another American family and household. Civil war is never easy but it is sometimes necessary. America found that out And Israel finds that out in Judges 20. Why does it happen? It happens because here we stand at the end of the book of Judges. And we have had quite a journey over these last many weeks. We started going through Judges before the whole lockdown happened. And we've been going through Judges that whole time. And had 
So many different looks at the sinfulness, the immorality, the rebellion of Israel. It's been quite an opportunity to look at the sin that we see in our own hearts, hasn't it? But here we stand near the end of the book of Judges, after Judges 19 and that, and that terrible episode that we dealt with last week with the Levite and his concubine. And Israel has failed to look square into the eye of their sinfulness. They have failed to deal with it. And because they have failed to deal with it and address it, this is the only option they have. So like America and like Israel, the need for civil war may be there in our own lives. Because if we fail to address sin when it comes up, we will deal with it later and it will not be a choice any longer. The three ideas we'll look at today. First, there's a tragic unity and strength. There's unity and strength that Israel shows. And it's surprising in many ways, but it's a tragedy because of the fact that they're only showing it now when they go up to fight against their own brothers. Secondly, faith in the midst of tragedy. Israel shows a surprising, persevering faith in the midst of tragedy. And that's a a challenge and an encouragement for us. And then thirdly, the biggest tragedy of all, God's silence. The biggest tragedy of all, God's silence. So first, tragic unity and strength. As we mentioned, chapter 19 leaves us at quite a low point in Israel's history, which is our history. These are our people. These are our spiritual forefathers. So this is our shared history. Certainly a low point in God's people. And there's a big reaction to it, isn't there? Men come out dressed to fight, armed for battle. Those who hear about what happened to the Levite and his concubine, they haven't heard the explicit story, but the the pieces of this concubine are sent throughout the land, which makes us just fly with with questions. Our our minds are racing. What's going on here? But they know, and, and it's something in the human spirit, that when there's this great injustice, we're moved to action. We're moved to want to do things. And that's what the Israelites are going through now. So they assemble, and it's not a peaceful assembly. This is not a town hall meeting. This is not a, a Q&A. This is not a public forum on how they're going to solve this problem. These are men who have come, who have come, who have, who have come dressed for battle. That's how dire and serious the situation is. The time for conversation has likely passed. So it's encouraging that there's a line in the sand that we, we kind of probably wonder where that line in the sand was throughout Judges. We've seen rebellion, we've seen idolatry and these cycles of idolatry running towards other gods and immorality and paganism and syncretism. And we're asking ourselves, where is the line in the sand? Well, we found out the line in the sand was here. But even though that's encouraging, there's murkiness all around this chapter. Because with all the encouraging things, there's also things that we know aren't quite perfect. And the main thing that we see at the beginning of chapter 20 is that Israel is being forced to follow this Levite who was in Gibeah, who threw his concubine out to the men in Gibeah, and she was raped and abused all night, brought within an inch of her life. Remember, at the end of chapter 19, we're forced to ask the question, is it actually the Levite who ends his concubine's life? We were never told that she was dead when he found her, but We're told that he cuts her up. And then in Judges 20, he is called the man of the murdered woman. 
a husband of the murdered woman. Now, that word for murdered most often means a planned, premeditated murder, which if this woman died because of the abuse that she suffered at the hands of the men of Gibeah, that would be murder, but it would be most, most likely what we would call today something like second-degree murder. It, was, it happened through a, a gross negligence of human life, but it was not something that was premeditated most likely. So once again, we're forced to ask the question, if this, if this woman, this poor woman, is murdered, was it actually the Levite who ended her life, showing his low view of women, showing his low view of human life, so that he can get something out of it? And so there's murkiness because Israel is listening to this Levite give the story of what happened. Here's what happened to me in Gibeah, and notice that he paints himself as the victim. Listen to what I had to go through. And if his concubine were alive, those of us in the know who read chapter 19, we would say, she really has the main grievance. She was the one who was thrown out to the dogs to suffer that terrible night. One thing that this highlights is that when you get tangled up in a web of sin, and when your life is is defined by this moral murkiness, sometimes there are no clear-cut answers Uh, solutions to your problems. Israel is forced to deal with this great injustice. They know a great injustice has happened. They know that they have to do something about it and their senses, they have to go into battle. They come armed for battle, but they're having to follow the word of this Levite whom we know is not a morally upstanding man. And we know that he is lying in some sense to paint himself a certain way as he recounts what happens. But that's what happens when you become tangled up in a web of sin. Sometimes there's no clear-cut road out of it. And it reminds us, once again, that sin really is that bad. That's one of the main things we learn from judges. Sin is dangerous. Sin really is that bad. You do need to deal with sin. John Owen says that in battle, there's nothing that's a clearer show of domination, of victory in battle than a king who leads his enemies into captivity. He wins the battle. The remaining survivors on the other side say, we've had enough, we surrender. He binds them, he takes them either into prison or into slave labor. John Owen says that's, that's the clearest show of victory on the battlefield. And that's true. That's true domination. And that is what sin does. Sin leads us into captivity, not just body, but body and soul. That's what sin does. It makes us captive to itself. Thomas Brooks points that out in his work as well. He's he's writing to young men and he's challenging them to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. He, he, He always says, be good before people would expect you to be good. Follow Christ before people would expect you to follow Christ. And one of the things he places before them is is to say, you need to think about sin like a tyrant. It wants to bind you. It wants to make you its slave. It wants to imprison you, body and soul. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin would make you a captive. And there's no clearer show of victory over someone or something than to lead them into captivity. Don't go where sin wants to take you. Too often we think sin too small 
an enemy. But it's not. Sin really is that bad, and sin really is that present in each of us. Thomas Manton says that all of the sins that have ever been or will ever be committed in all of the world and in all of human history, they are all there in our natures, in our hearts. He says that's how susceptible to sin you are. No one is more fallen than another. No one is less fallen than another. So often we can look around the world and and we're faced with great wickedness and we can often think to ourselves, that person is, is more fallen than I am or more depraved. But the only reason that our lives perhaps, hopefully, manifest much less sin is by the restraining grace of God. If it were not for the restraining grace of God, we would all be horrified to see what we are capable of. That's how sinful we are in our natures. And that's how dangerous sin can be. All of the sin in all of human history, it's right there in our natures, and it can be manifested through certain temptations and certain situations. Why am I not a murderer? Why am I not committing adultery multiple times a day? Why am I not like the men of Gibeah? The restraining grace of God. God has restrained me by his grace. Be thankful and pray for more of his grace. Returning to Judges 20, There's uh, something that we see, there's a connection to another part of scripture, and the connection there is is Joshua 7 and 8, which is a recounting of one of the most successful occurrences of holy war in the history of God's people. That's when Joshua leads his people against Ai. It's really an exemplary uh, place where we see holy war executed by the Israelites. So something's going on here, because in Judges 19, remember, That narrative reads almost like a mirror image of Genesis 19. The men of Sodom, the men of Gibeah, these Israelite men, they are acting like the men of Sodom. And the message there is, this is how Canaanized you have become. This is how sinful you have become as God's people. Judges 20 continues that message to say, the only way that the sin within Israel, within the tribe of Benjamin, can be dealt with is through holy war, complete destruction of the tribe of Benjamin, putting them to the sword and setting their cities on fire. Again, it's shocking to read that towards the end of of Judges 20. They go through the cities and they devote them to the sword. This is holy war. This is what God had commanded them to do in purging the Canaanites from the promised land. They did not do it. And so they are forced to do it now. That is the tragedy that we see in Judges 19 and 20. You are like Sodom, You are so bad, the only way this can be dealt with in your life or in the life of Israel is by holy war. You think of it like something that's an external battle that becomes internal. And so I'll use this as an example, not to say that it's some terrible sin, but just because I think it illustrates it quite well. Think about uh, a bad habit that's been proven to be linked to Uh, problems with health, something like smoking cigarettes. That's extremely difficult for many people to quit. And at the beginning of that battle to quit, people say, okay, I don't want to keep doing this because I know there's a chance I could get lung cancer or something like that if I continue to do it. So the battle is mainly external. I don't want to smoke anymore. I know that I want to quit. But you can't fight the urge. And so you try to quit. You try and try and try. You can't. 
And then several years later, perhaps decades later, God forbid, but many people, they get a diagnosis of lung cancer. Now all of a sudden, the battle is internal. See, it was external. I want to quit. I should quit. I can't fight the urge. Now there's lung cancer. Now you need to go in, get treatment. You can't deny that you're going to go through painful situations because of what you neglected to do earlier. That's something like what happens here with the picture of sin. Israel refuses to deal with it. And again and again and again they fail. And these cycles of failure and cycles of oppression. Now all of a sudden they cannot deny that the battle has been brought to their front door. We need to think that way about sin. Kill sin at the start. What happens with lust, greed, envy, pride? Where do they end? We know where all of those sins end. If we allow them to reign in our hearts, we know where that will end. Kill sin at the start. The communities of God's people also have something to bear in mind here with church discipline. Churches who do not or churches who allow sin to go unchecked, who do not deal with it, there will be a day of reckoning for those communities. But as I mentioned, there is a show of unity and strength here in Judges 20. They, they show unity. Israel assembles as one man, and they have all these men armed with swords. And even the tribe of Benjamin has a great show of strength with these left-handed warriors. It reminds us of Ehud at the beginning of Judges, right? He was a left-handed warrior. Benjamin had this, this great ability to fight in battle when they were outnumbered. This is part of God's people as well. And so there's all of this strength, and what we're forced to say is, you should have used this sooner. You should have used this unity sooner to expel the Canaanites. You should have used this strength sooner to expel the Canaanites from the promised land. But as it is, you've become completely Canaanized. Another thing that is impressive is their, their faith in the midst of tragedy. Not the tribe of Benjamin, but the rest of God's people. There's a, a persevering faith. They go out to battle. God sends them out into battle, which is surprising for us. Right? They, they, they ask of God, what, am I, what are we to do? Are we to go up into battle? God says, go into battle. Let Judah go first. They go out into battle the first day, and it's a resounding victory for the Benjamites. Does Israel stop there? No. If we were to go back and read in chapter 1 especially, it seems like what the Israelites most often would do when they attempted to expel some of the Canaanites from the promised land, they would go up against them, but if it failed, they would just give up. And say, well, obviously God doesn't want us to expel this tribe from the promised land. And that's too often what happens. We, we interpret God's activity through the lens of our circumstances in life. Well, things are going badly for me, so God must really hate me. The situation in my life is not very pleasant, so God, so God hates me. My goals in life aren't really working out, so Christianity must not really be real. We interpret the goodness of God the character of God, or the plan of God, and the purposes of God through our circumstances. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Israel is sent out into battle for two days. God says, go up into battle. Both of those days, they lose. In one sense, God is executing his justice and his discipline against his people who have run from him for so long. He's bringing punishment upon them. And often, when you have let sin go unchecked in your life, 
and scarring has built up, when you finally realize that the battle has been brought to your front door, there will be pain in going through the purging of that sin, that sinfulness from your life. It's not going to be easy, whether it be getting rid of an addiction or something else. It's not going to be easy. A pattern of behavior, a way that you treat your spouse or your family members, retraining yourself is not going to be easy. But what we see is that's so different about Judges 20 is that the Israelites are following the king. Remember, that, re- that recurring theme in Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For this small window of time, they're following the king. And so the third day they go out into battle and God gives them the victory. What happens there leading up to that third day in battle is if, if ever we see repentance in judges, remember we've been saying again and again that they'll often cry out to the Lord in pain and anguish, but this is not repentance. If ever we see repentance in the book of Judges, here's where it is. They lose in battle, especially the second day. What do they do? They weep. They worship the Lord. They offer burnt sacrifices and thank offerings. They offer these, these sacrifices unto the Lord. And all of those things are lessons for us. Surprising when we think about all Israel, what all of Israel has gone through. But here's what it teaches us. When things go bad in our lives, our first instinct must be to fall down before God and to worship him, to seek him, to seek his grace. Because we assume that even though we don't understand his mysterious ways, we always hold up who he is as perfect. And his way is perfect. And we submit to him, though there will be things that we don't enjoy. That should be our instinct. We don't like our circumstances? Worship God. We don't like the way that things are going in our life? Fall down before God. Worship him. Thank him. All hope is not lost. As we move then to the final idea, uh, the biggest tragedy of all, the silence of God. Is it all too little too late? We ask ourselves for the Israelites. Well, no, it's not. And why is it not too little too late? Because if their God is with them, which he shows that he is. Remember, they go up and they inquire of the Lord. Shall we go up against the Benjamites? They're our brothers. Should we go into battle against them? And God responds. If he would have said nothing, that would have been the biggest tragedy of all. But he did respond. Because he's a God who delights to show mercy and grace. The fact that we are here this morning is a consequence that God responds in Judges chapter 20. Israel could have collapsed in on itself, could have wiped itself off the map of the earth as a people because they were set on destroying themselves and they were headed that direction. But the fact that we are here is a consequence that God responds in Judges 20. And if your God responds, if the God who is the creator of all things, if he is the one who holds the world in his hands and he has decreed all things from beginning to end, if he is with you, then you have enough. You can have nothing else. And if you have the God of the universe, your covenant God with you, then you have enough. This is probably how Israel was thinking about it at this point. Yes, things are bad. Yes, this will be painful going up against the Benjamites. No, we will not enjoy this. 
But we now know that if we have our covenant God still with us, after all we've done, after all this, then we know that if we simply follow him and his word, we will have enough. For our God is enough. They had access to God. They could go before him and they could seek his will. They had access to the God who hears them, who loves them, who forgives them, who leads them out into battle. Everything else could have been crumbling around them, but they had enough, didn't they? What is enough for us? What is enough for us? If everything else crumbles in our lives, what is enough for us? It is knowing that in Christ, we have access to God. In Christ, we can appear before God. In Christ, God hears our prayers, he forgives us, and he remains with us, and he loves us, and he leads us out into battle. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there, it seems like the author of Hebrews is pointing out, or at least implicitly saying, we should not have confidence, and we shouldn't. Because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we should not have confidence to enter the holy place. But we do because of Christ, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Yes, we all stumble in many ways. But God is a God who delights to show mercy. God is a God who delights to forgive. And to have Christ is to have all that you need. So look upon the wonderful mercy of God in Christ and understand that Christ is all. Your life may look like the way Israel's looked in Judges. It may be in disarray because of sin. It may be completely in pieces. But if you would look to Christ in faith, you have the means to appear before God and for him to answer you and for him to cleanse you. And to have your God is to have enough. Things in your life may fall apart outside of that, like it largely did for Israel, going to war against their brothers destroying one of their tribes, which was their own strength. They're purging this sin, but as they're doing so, they're taking away from their own strength in Israel, this tribe of Benjamin that could go up and defeat armies that were more powerful, more numerous than they were. But in Christ you have enough. Christ is all in all in the plan of God. He is all in all in the scriptures. He is all in our justification before God. He is all in our sanctification before God. It's only by Christ's power that we can show fruit in our lives. It's only by continuously leaning on Christ and looking to him in faith that God will produce the fruit in our lives that makes us pleasing unto him. He is all in all. J.C. Ryle says this, Is Christ all? then let all his converted people deal with him as if they really believed it. Do you really believe that Christ is all? Deal with him as if you believed it. He goes on to say, let them lean on him and trust him far more than they have ever done yet. Alas, there are many of the Lord's people who live far below their privileges. 
There are many truly Christian souls who rob themselves of their own peace and forsake their own mercies. There are many who insensibly join their own faith or the work of the Spirit in their own hearts to Christ and so miss the fullness of gospel peace. There are many who make little progress in their pursuit of holiness and shine with a very dim light. And why is all this? Simply because in 19 cases out of 20, men do not make Christ all in all. Make him all in all. If we are too often our own worst enemy, if we really realize that the problem lies with us as we look inward and we see how sin has run rampant through our lives and through our hearts, then let us fly away from ourselves and into the loving hands of the Savior and the loving arms of our Father. Will it be easy? Will tearing away the scarring of years of patterns of sin and sinfulness, will will that be easy? No. If sin has had its way with us, the road will be difficult. But if we have Christ... If we have Christ, we have all that we need. Amen. Let's pray. So great God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that your truth was declared here today and that in it and through it, you, by your spirits, would allow this word and this truth to take root in hearts and to change lives. We leave it up to you, for we know that only you can change us, only you can transform us. We pray that you would help us to know a little bit more today what it means to say that Christ is all in all. And would you teach us to deal with him, our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, as if we really believed it. Forgive us, cleanse us, renew us by your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.